Welcome to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life. My name is Karen Habat. Um, I have a, I'm an emergency nurse. I have a PhD in disaster health. Um, I currently consult for the WHO and do teaching as well for Monash University and a hospital coordinator for Calvary Health Services. it wasn't really too tricky for me to figure out um, what we would talk about today but um, it'd be good to hear about how you became so interested in preparing health professionals to be more effective in their response to disasters and emergency if you were able to tell us about what really spurred you to start working in that arena. So um, working as an emergency nurse uh, at the time uh, when 9-11 happened, I remember <clears throat> thinking um, or watching it on TV and I got, as I was watching it that night over here, uh, I was thinking about the emergency departments in New York and thinking, you know, how terrifying it must be for them and having, you know, floods of patients come in. And then I started thinking what that would be like in my own city which is Adelaide, which doesn't have that many um, catastrophic disasters so far, touch wood, <laughs> that we had to have had to deal with. Um, so I started thinking how we would respond and what that means for us. Uh, at that time, I didn't even know that we had a disaster plan. No one had really talked to me about these sorts of things. I hadn't um, heard about or learned about disasters during my undergraduate degree. Um, and so I just one started wondering what, what that meant and what it would be like and thinking, actually, that would be really terrifying and I have no idea what to do. So that's what got me thinking about it. Um, so I started reading about it and trying to do MIMS courses and I became a MIMS instructor and that sort of stuff. Um, and then eventually I decided I wanted to know if everybody else felt as unprepared as I did. So I did a, a research um, a piece of research looking at the education and training of disaster education and training of emergency nurses in South Australia and found that generally we didn't feel that well prepared. <laughs> um, that led me to, to meet my uh, future PhD supervisor and then um, pursue a career uh, initially in academia, now in consulting um, and trying to help prepare health professionals for disaster response. You mentioned um, you mentioned 9-11 there. I, I vividly remember when I first heard about 9-11, I was on my way to a morning shift um, and I had a long drive. So I, I heard it on the radio as I left the main road out of my little village that I live in. And I thought it was something like, you know, an Alfred Hitchcock sort of play. It, it, I, I couldn't understand actually what was happening. And it wasn't really until I got to where, and then, you know, it started to unfold on the news, on the radio news. And when I got to work, my colleagues were basically, you know, finishing a, a, a night duty and standing, looking at the TV in the waiting room, just aghast. And 
my feeling was the exact same as yours. Was all I could think of was, oh, my God, imagine being in an emergency department over there right now. Now, there'd been loads of other disasters that I'd seen, but it wasn't until then that it kind of hit me. Plus, I was, you know, I was a novice emergency um, uh, nurse, so... It, it wasn't it hadn't been on my radar so that's really interesting that that was what spurred you to start in this area yeah so and the, the thing with 9-11 i think it happened in a developed country and as you just said there there's many disasters and we hear about it on the news and it's in a faraway country and um, maybe a less developed country or a country that we don't um, maybe relate to as as well as much um and then 9-11 oh, for some reason i just think i mean it did dominate um our media um and maybe it was a health system type setup that we could relate to and maybe that's why it had more of an impact but i just remember remember watching it my brain couldn't compute something like that mm. like something like that happening in my own city yeah and it's an interesting it's an interesting sort of comparison between when when covid lockdown started you know the over in america they shot out um you know they they really started preparing for a massive surge in patients and they just didn't get them um in initially and that similar sort of more prolonged period certainly here in victoria at the beginning you know, there was massive preparations around the changing the geography of your department, splitting um, respiratory cases to one part of the department, moving fast track out, those sorts of things. Um, and it just didn't happen initially. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that, that makes people really uh, anxious because um, you don't know how well that system's going to work until you use it in anger. Um it's um and that, that was something else i found during my phd research particularly in regions uh where there are bushfires where the eds will get ready to respond and to receive multiple bushfire victims and then no one comes or they all um the few the few that sort of survive with um horrific burns will, will be transferred to the burn centers um and everyone else stays away from the other EDs so it can quieten things down a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it, it's kind of antithetical to how you think it w would go, but it feels like that's actually, actually what happens. I'll just go back to your early days just for a little bit longer because um, this is something that interests me. Um, I always think that there's um, uh, insufficient um, release for nurses to do other things other than clinical work, uh, such as research and teaching and whatnot. Um, in the early days of your work and research in, in this area, how did you balance your clinical ED commitments and the work that you were starting to re research and publish? <laughs> Not very well. <laughs> so um, this was something I was so passionate about because I just, I felt so unprepared and I wanted to be more prepared and I wanted to know how to be more prepared. So I just read whatever I could at the time and um, went to, I did a few courses and things like that. Um, but I'd speak to my colleagues and find out that everybody else felt just as unprepared as me. And um, that's what, that passion, I guess, is what spurred me into doing 
the research. When I did my first um, research study, I literally had no idea. I had I had done my undergraduate degree maybe oh maybe ten years prior. You know when I used to, I I mean I didn't even really know how to use a computer back then. <laughs> Just um, just getting into computers. I was writing, handwriting my assignments, that sort of stuff. So um, it was all a bit foreign to me, I guess. Um, then I did my, un, um, sorry, my graduate certificate. I had a little bit more of an understanding of perhaps what research was, but I really didn't know a lot. Um, and I was, I guess, was supported a bit by um, a colleague in the emergency department at the time, one of the emergency department consultants. Um, supported me a little bit to to pursue that and another uh, colleague of mine I remember sitting out at triage one day talking to him about this and he said I don't know he'd found out that there was um, a conference in Amsterdam for the World Association of Disaster and Emergency Medicine and they were accepting abstracts and he's like oh you, sh you should put in an abstract for this I'll cover triage while you do this this is very quiet night duty I might add so um, I did put in an abstract and it got accepted. And so I went to that conference. It was just a poster presentation and presented my research. And as I said, that's how I actually met my future PhD supervisor um, because the emergency department consultant I worked with had said, you should look out for this guy because I think he does the same stuff as you do. Um, and so I guess that gave me a little bit more understanding about academia because at that time he was um, working at Flinders University. Um, and I, I think he, he tried to convince me to do a PhD. And I remember at the time thinking, well, I'm a clinical nurse and I'm an emergency nurse and that's what I love and that's all I know how to do. I just want to know more about disasters. So then he convinced me to do my honours degree. And I think having that sort of knowledge through an honours degree helped me understand a little bit more about the research process. Um, eventually, I think uh, my employers perhaps got a little bit fed up with me poking and poking. Um, and I, I think I managed to get like a day to, um, I don't know, like look into the disaster plan at that time. Um, but I just found that a huge struggle because one day, one person trying to understand the disaster plan and you know get it sorted out, that's not, that's not feasible. It needs to be um, a group approach. You need to have stakeholders from all parts of the hospital. You can't just have one person sitting there drafting it or, or educating on it. Um, so I found it very, very frustrating um, trying to, because it's a very low priority. They're not, it's not something the hospital necessarily at the time wanted to um, commit to, much to. Um, so I felt like it was a bit of a one-man show and um, and eventually I left to pursue academia um, and then do my emergency nursing on the side. It was, it was never possible for me to hold like a shared position um, where I could work in the emergency department and do research as well. That, probably is possible now, but back then it wasn't. You reckon it's possible now? Do you think that um, people can, um, unless they've got a particular personality and drive, they have the opportunity either as a, well, as an emergency nurse to have that kind of separation and be, be given release to do that type of work? 
Um, look, I know there's shared positions now, but when I think about the people that are in them, yes, they're people that have significant expertise in the area and have pushed probably to maintain those positions or to go back and, you know, argue for that position. Um, but so maybe, no, it's, it's not that, probably not that possible. I, I It really frustrates me <laughs> because I feel like it's something that should be supported. And even when I did my honours degree and when I did my PhD, I had so many people say to me, what, what would you do that for? And to be honest, the only reason I did it was because I was so passionate about disaster response that I just wanted to, um, like, learn as much as I could and disseminate as much information as I could to maybe help people feel more prepared. That's really the only reason why I pursued it. But I felt like a lot of people around me were questioning why you would do that, which means there's not much of a culture supporting doing research as well as working. I agree. I, I think the the I think the doctors have it wired in terms of how those sorts of responsibilities, like a bit of research, some teaching, is built into their into their portfolio. And um, I I think we've got a long way to go. Personally, hundred um, percent agree with you. a little bit about my experience with um, uh, ED disaster preparedness. Um, up until the current pandemic, my experience has pretty much been limited to uh, checking the disaster packs every Saturday morning in the ED um, and the occasional CBR exercise where at the end of and in the middle of and even leading up to, I felt so underprepared. It feels like, however, um, that EDs are becoming more invested in preparing their staff for large-scale emergencies. What do you think about this? And are we getting there? Do we have any – are we still falling short or are we getting there? I think there's nothing like a global pandemic to shake everyone up a little bit. (laughs) Good for business. Yeah. Um, Are we getting there? Um, I think we we tend to focus on – planning for what we know or what we think will happen. Um, And I think there's a large focus on like preparing for a, say, mass casualty event, um, for example. And I think COVID-19 has probably shown us that we're not prepared for all things. I think there's a lot of, when um, COVID hit our shores, there was a lot of scrambling to maybe redesign hospitals and infrastructure and throughput through the emergency department and pulling out policies or writing policies on the run, that sort of stuff. I, um, from what I've seen, I don't think uh, we have been well prepared and I'm talking globally. I've um, been to other countries and helped with the COVID response and seen that there's just a generalised lack of preparedness in this particular area. And then on top of that, if we, we come from a region where um, we're, we're, we're relatively lucky in terms of the frequency of disasters or um, low frequency of catastrophic disasters. And I feel like there's a little bit of complacency that it won't happen to us. And that's certainly what I've experienced throughout my career. Um, as I said, I, I, I didn't, I mean, I'm, we're going back, 
I know I've been in emergency nursing for 20 something years. As I said, I didn't know there was a disaster plan. I certainly hadn't read it, didn't know where to find it. I had never done disaster training. The disaster training I did is what I sought myself. Um, I did one large scale exercise. I was lucky enough to be involved in called Exercise Supreme Truth. And that was a um, C CBR exercise at the time, the largest in the Southern Hemisphere. And there's been a um, paper or two written about that. And to me, that was also really, I think it was around 2002 or 2003. So maybe a year or two after 9-11. To me, that was really eye-opening about how, like how you would respond um, to these sorts of events. Um, I think, I think there's pockets of um, preparedness. I feel like in, in places where, you know, up north where they get cyclones, hospitals are probably better prepared for those events. But again, not so much for the events that we don't think will happen. Um, I don't think we're getting there. I think maybe after COVID, uh, there might be a bigger push or a bit more of an investment by hospitals. Um, but generally, it's a low priority. We've we're so busy in our emergency departments these days that it's difficult to fit in training for something that might not ever happen um, into our everyday business. And it feels like that sometimes that's the problem. It's like a paediatric arrest or a, you know, um, a, a patient presentation that you see once in a blue moon um, is that idea of preparedness you're prepared for things that you manage every day, but when you only see it once in a blue moon, it, it, you know, you're not match fit with that, are you? No. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Just for the listeners, we had a bit of a, a cutout. That's fine. Um, um, <clears throat> you mentioned some of the work that you were doing overseas related to COVID preparedness. Um, I don't even know where to start with asking you about this. Perhaps you'd be um, able to um, tell us a little bit about what you and your colleagues have been doing there. Uh, yeah, so I, I consult for the WHO um, and have worked in a few different roles with the WHO in relation to COVID. Specifically, I've um, uh, got on missions to uh, the Balkans region and assessed hospital readiness for COVID. So this was at, um, closer to the beginning of the year, just as we were um, starting to get a little bit more worried about COVID. Um, and that required me going into hospitals and assessing their readiness and talking to staff um, um, about how they would manage it what sort of PPE they had, what sort of infection control they had in place um, and advising them and working with them on ways to better prepare their hospitals. Um, on Monday, I'm going on a mission to um, Papua New Guinea and uh, there I'll also be working on um, case management for the COVID response, which again requires um, working with hospitals and emergency departments on how better to manage the um, caseload. 
Interesting. So we were talking before we started recording that I spent some time earlier in the year doing some primary healthcare stuff in remote PNG, and we were we were talking about PNG. And since then, I've actually um, lost the thread a little bit of how COVID has impacted PNG. Do you have any any update on how they're going over there? Um, at the moment, um, all I can say is that they have a significant community transmission. Um, last I heard the 10 of the provinces had community transmission. Um, so yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, it's an interesting place given the, the lack of infrastructure, you know, it's actually quite tricky to get from, um, one place to the other. You have to fly or go by boat everywhere. And, um, in fact, they don't even have a road that goes, anywhere significantly uh, distant from somewhere like Port Moresby, the capital. Um, there's no roads out. <laughs> there's no roads in from other from other provinces. It's all by air. So it, it's, it's, it, it'll be an interesting thing to look at uh, that idea of community transmission because it will have it will have moved around by air and by boat um, more, more than likely. Um, yeah, but I, I, did, I do worry, uh, you know, when this all first started, I really started worrying about um, lower and middle income uh, countries like Papua New Guinea. And Papua New Guinea was at the for, you know, forefront of my mind because I'd been there recently thinking, oh, my God, this is going to decimate uh, them. But for quite a while, there were zero cases. But then that comes down to how much testing and stuff was done as well. Exactly. Yeah. So where, where where have you been with uh, WHO? Um, so I've also worked in the headquarters in Geneva, um, working on health security, um, mostly related to chemical, biological and radiological events. Um, so and um, have also um, been working with the Copenhagen office or the regional office in Copenhagen. Um, working on um, training programs and policy um, and guidelines around, so guidelines largely around um, the hospital readiness tool um, and scaling down um, from COVID, which hopefully we, we could use soon. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you, you so, sorry, you mentioned there that you, you've been consulting a lot with uh with who around hospital preparedness. I wouldn't mind bringing you back to a question around the individual. How should emergency doctors and nurses themselves prepare for these sorts of events? So number one I would say is read the plan. <laughs> Find out where the plan is and read it and read it with a critical eye. So who wrote it? Are they, you know, qualified to write it? Uh, when was it written? Has it been reviewed and updated? Was it a, a group of people who wrote it or was it just one person sitting in the office because they have an interest in it, <laughs> writing it? Um, does it cover all hazards or is it just quite specific to one? And do you think it would work in, in reality? Do you think it would work? Um, if there's no plan, then push for the plan. Um, so poke, you know, management, because um, you need to have a plan and the plan needs to be practised. Um, so know your role in the plan as well, um, which comes down to practising it or, you know, at least having read it. 
Um, I would say the onus is largely on the individual these days to seek out extra knowledge. I feel like the hospitals aren't necessarily providing in that, and that's because they obviously have a lot of other competing uh, interests and budgetary requirements and things like that. Um, but I would say seek out information and share that with your colleagues. So you can have a chat in the team room over lunch about what you might do in, in a certain event. Um, I'm not and... sure I understand. <laughs> did you hear that? Yes, I did. <laughs> Siri doesn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I turned my phone off. But not at all. <laughs> That's fine. Um, Very good. <laughs> Yeah, so you were talking about um, the individual. They were in the tea room chatting with their colleagues. Yes. Um, the, yeah, and so and also um, don't assume that you don't know anything and you're not prepared. At the end of the day, you know, you're an emergency nurse or an emergency doctor and you're going to be doing generally what you do every day anyway. They're not going to ask you to do um, something completely out of your scope of practice, obviously. But there are things that obviously will change um, about working in these events. And that's what I think um, you also need to be aware of. So there might be some skin, clinical skills that you don't use often um, that you might be using in that environment. Um, uh, you might, the space might change. And I think we've seen that with COVID, obviously, um, you know, you suddenly wearing PPE all the time. Um, people are, you know, you've got people in isolation rooms or in isolated areas. Um, you might have changed the flow through the emergency department. So the way you do things might change slightly to the everyday. Um, uh, the context under which you're working as well, obviously might be different and that's something you need to be aware of. For example, if it's a a terror event, there's the additional fear factor um, associated with it, and that might be fear emanating from the people that have been involved or the fact that your community has just been involved in something or the fear that it might sort of transfer into the emergency department. So I think you need to be aware of these things that might change within that environment, being, um, I guess, prepared for that. Um, and then I think also need to consider about being prepared at home. So if you're going to be stuck at work for a prolonged period of time, unexpectedly thinking about how your kids are going to get home from school or, um, uh, who's going to look after your pets or that sort of stuff. Um, if you will, you know, you might not be able to physically get home depending on, you know, if there's been like infrastructure damage or something like that. Um, and you're stuck at the hospital, God forbid. <laughs> um, you know, you might not be able to get home. So you need to have these conversations with your family. If you've got a partner, for example, who works in emergency services as well, what does that mean for the kids? Or, you know, to have a plan at home um, uh, and think through those things as well. So those are things that I think that we could all do to be a little bit more prepared. Mm. You, you mentioned there's something that... Um... Uh, has been present in my mind is it's around you mentioned the idea of the fear factor um i've got this is a bit self-serving and i spoke to jamie rance um recently about this um i've got a, a master's student who's interested in looking at um 
uh, nurses' willingness to 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 care for patients with COVID and or even suspected of having COVID. And I know you've published in this arena as with Jamie as well in the past. Um, where do you think that that fits in with doctors and nurses preparing themselves for for disasters? So again, I think we prepare for the things that we think will happen or the things that we um, we know will happen. Um, and we, I think we maybe we sometimes turn a blind eye to those things that we're not so comfortable with or those more unconventional events that might happen. Um, so there, there is a lot of literature out there to say that healthcare professionals generally are more willing to respond to conventional events like um, a mass casualty event caused by an earthquake or something like that and less prepared to um, respond to things such as chemical, biological, radiological events or terror events. Um, and that's why that's where I think we need to shift our preparedness towards those things that we don't feel that comfortable with. I feel that if we shift our preparedness a little bit more or our readiness a little bit more towards those things, um, then that might mitigate against some of the negative effects of working in those events, such as having um, post-traumatic stress or acute stress disorders after the event, um, which can obviously have bigger issues for the organisation or the individual down the track. Yeah. Cool. Um, I think we're probably... <laughs> is that your dog barking? <laughs> I always fear that my dogs are going to bark during these things. Um it, it, it has been so good talking to you, Karen. Um, I wish you all the best in PNG. Please don't worry about the place. It is absolutely stunning and the people are absolutely wonderful. Um, they're really beautiful and, and welcoming and so appreciative of any kind of help they, they can receive around, especially around healthcare. You know, it's such a topical thing for all of the people uh, that I spoke to while I was there. So I think you're going to have a, a really rewarding and uh, fulfilling sort of t uh, time over there. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for dropping by. And I don't think we're finished. I think we need to speak to you again when you come back. <laughs> sure. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Thanks, Karen. Thanks for listening in. Just a reminder that none of the opinions or thoughts shared on the show necessarily represent those of Cena or our employers. The music you're listening to is by Ben Maswick and The Millions. Um, they can be found on iTunes and Spotify and all the usual places. If you have a suggestion or a recommendation for a guest on the show, why not head over to thisemergencylife.com and leave us a message, or you can email us at thisemergencylife at gmail.com. You've been listening to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life. <laughs>